This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Shouldn't you be at home? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. You can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Panister and Bruce in the queue again. Bruce scores! Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, he has No! Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Quickly Kevin Film Club. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me, Josh Widdicombe. Hello. And a man equally as respected in the film industry as Eric Cantona. It's Mr. Michael Marden. Hello. Would you consider Eric Cantona's film career a success? Um, I wouldn't say it was a disaster. No, I, I wouldn't say that you'd know much about it if he wasn't Eric Cantona. But I think it would be considered a success because people would have presumed it would be so bad, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, what have we watched for the first Quickly Kevin Film Club, Skull? We have watched 1996 classic by the name of When Saturday Comes, starring Sean Bean. Lifelong Sheffield United fan from a family that's fairly hard done by, is by all accounts a very talented footballer, but for whatever reason it doesn't work out for him. He finds himself at a brewery, but then apparently goes on a great run for his kind of pub team, gets noticed by non-league, and, and then, then eventually gets a trial with Sheffield United yeah. and... There the we story go. continues from the there. The story continues from there. I find it astonishing. My first observation would be, I find it astonishing that it was made in 1996. Do you think it feels older than that? Well, the opening shots look like a Hovis advert. <laughs> yeah, that was my that was my exact note. That, that sort of sepia-toned Sheffield backstreets. It looks like the 50s. That shot sets the tone, I think, for a lot of what is to come creatively in the film. It's essentially like an identikit of really tired, cliched genre conventions. Yeah, it's kind of it's a gritty '80s drama, isn't it? That's kind of got football laid over it. Yeah, where it made in the '60s, like Albert Finney would have been in it, a sort of Saturday night, Sunday yeah, yeah. morning type vibe. This small town boy, yeah. he's got talent but no dedication. The disapproving parent, he's got a dead end job. Like they're all there, all of those stock characters. I think if, if I was to sum up the the film. It would be the opening dialogue of the film. Between him and the teacher. Between him and his teacher on the last day of school. Yeah. The teacher says, you've got two choices, go down pit or work in factory. And he says, (laughs) but sir, I want to be a footballer. (laughs) (laughs) Writing is rewriting, guys. Surely that, surely. Do you know the working title for the film? No. Pint of Bitter. No. That was what the film was doing. (laughs) Like in title. I guess it's a play on 
pints of bitter, but also oh, pints see. of everyone's bitter. I, I was oh, thinking I about see. that afterwards. Right, yeah. Talking of titles, I was going to come to this, but uh, I was fascinated because when Saturday comes is... I mean, what is it? Is it a sort of idiom or a colloquialism? But it's it's a phrase that I don't think translates outside of the UK no. in terms of sort of football and what it means. And I've always been fascinated by like the foreign language names for films when they repackage oh, yeah. them and sell them to foreign territories. So I did a bit of research and tried to sort of find out what this film would have been called abroad. In Bulgaria, it was called When the Sabbath Comes. <laughs> in uh, in Finland. Saturday is game day. <laughs> in Greece, the day of the race. Oh, yeah, I like that. Uh, in Italy, Saturday in the ball. What? And uh, in Russia, just the very efficient penalty. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, to what, like, what extent do those markets have the license to do what they want? Is the filmmaker involved in the changing of those names? Michael, you'll know that. Yeah, quite often it's the sales agent and the marketing yeah. team. They'll, they'll essentially say, we can sell it for more money if it's called this and we put this on the poster and then they, they take care of it. I, can I ask a question? I don't actually know. Well, so what does the phrase when Saturday comes mean? I suppose it'll be, we'll all see what happens when Saturday comes. Do you know what I mean? That's what's important is when Saturday comes, I suppose. I can't really distance it from the excellent football magazine, which I think is my favourite football publication, but it also... You know, that must have been named after the phrase, but no one would ever say it now, would they? I, mean, I, I haven't heard it outside of the context of talking about this horrible Sean Bean film we're about to discuss. <laughs> so do you both think it's a terrible film? Well, actually, I don't think it's that bad. We just discussed the opening sequence of the sepia-toned kid doing Keepy Uppies, the really overly long credits that from films don't seem to have anymore. And then that really on-the-nose comment from his teacher, I thought, this is going to be rubbish. But actually... It isn't that bad. It flew by. It's, got, like, it it's flew okay. By. Yeah. It's got problems, but it's, it was entertaining. Yeah. Michael? I think objectively, it's a terrible film, but it is, it's very watchable and very enjoyable in spite of that. I think you can't underestimate. Sean Bean is, is really good. Sean Bean is a good actor. He's just Sean Bean in this, isn't yeah, he? He's but, not exactly no, but what I mean flexing is, his muscles. No, 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 I'm not saying it's, it's a, an astonishing performance, but he's a, he's a very watchable actor. And particularly when you yeah. see him surrounded by some of the other characters, you realise how good Sean Bean is and how much star quality he has compared yeah. to, for instance, every other actor in it. Apart <laughs> <laughs> from people. <laughs> so he starts, it's his final day of school. Jimmy Muir, and he's got a younger brother. Um, how would you describe the younger brother character? He's kind of a nerd, isn't he? A bit wet. Yeah. He's, like, he's a bit he's wet. He's a bit yeah. wet, and he's very kind of happy-go-lucky, and he kind of worships Jimmy. And the opening shot, after Jimmy's had this discussion with the teacher about how um, he wants to be a footballer, is something that happens always in films and TV that I've never seen in real life, which is the bell ringing, and then all the children running out of school. Yeah. <laughs> That's never <laughs> happened in real life. <laughs> there was no kind of break for freedom at the end of school. You'd kind of amble away because <laughs> you're a surly teenager. But then you get into the pub and Jimmy and his brother have gone to buy uh, each by a pint of bitter at 16. Yeah, and this is the first instance of a real stereotyping of stock characters. And it's it's the buxom barmaid. Mm-hmm. Who knows that these children are underage? You know, you just look at them. They are yeah. young teenagers. And she just doesn't give a shit. Yeah. She just serves them alcohol. I mean, <laughs> I vaguely remember this growing up in the 90s. There was one pub on the Isle of Wight that was notorious for 
not IDing. So every Friday night you go and it would just be teenagers pretending to be men ordering pints of Fosters. And then once the police cracked down on that place, it went out of business in about six weeks because, <laughs> because no one went there. Like, did you guys have barmaids or bartenders or pubs like that growing yeah, up where you uh, were? Snooker clubs. So I used to go to snooker club and they would kind of like just serve you. The first time I ever went to a pub and bought a pint, we went to the pub. We were like, okay, kind of like you, you geeing each other up for it. We went in there. We said like two pints of lager, or whatever. Got the lager. We we're like, I can't believe we did it. Took a sip. And one of the other barmen's come round the bar, just took it out of our hands and said, "Get out!" <laughs> <laughs> so it was this brief moment where we thought we'd done it, and then VAR. Oh, oh, God. <laughs> I think, particularly yeah. in in the centre of Sheffield, which this is set, it would be a lot more difficult than say where I grew up. Where I think pubs slightly operate by their own rules a bit more in the countryside. Do you know what I mean? But a pub in the centre yeah, of Sheffield. Yeah. Well, I ever told you about when I was going to the Lake District and I had to get the train there and then I was going to get a taxi, but I had to kill 20 minutes. So I went into this kind of pub that was quite rough. It was a Friday afternoon. And there was just two people in there, the barmaid and the cleaner. And then one of them kind of recognised me from TV. And the one that didn't recognise me said, um, I don't know. They were like, oh, where are you from? I was like, London. And she went, so I suppose you've met the Queen? <laughs> That, that is a line of dialogue that wouldn't yeah, be out of place in this film. It wouldn't be out of place in this film at all. <laughs> I was astonished by how much they played up that sort yeah. of north-south divide. Then you kind of, after the pint, you see him in his work, and he works in a factory for a brewery. It very quickly cuts from sort of that young Jimmy yeah. to old Jimmy with no sense of how much time has passed. No. Like, I had no... It didn't, it didn't say five years later, ten years later. So my only gauge was to look at how old Sean Bean yeah. was when he made this film and used he that as the probably reference. in his and he, he was basically actually. he was 36 years right. old when this film was made I mean, so i'm going to assume that's his age i don't think it is though because he says he says he's been working at the brewery for 10 years so i think you ought to presume that he's 26 well sean bean's first scene in the movie when he comes out of young jimmy moore is kind of him walking down home from the brewery and then the kids in the street are like come on jimmy play football with us and you're like how old is he that, that these kids, he's playing with the kids in the street? And then he goes into his house and you see Sean Bean's character's mums for the first time. And she is the same age as Sean Bean. <laughs> there is no, I couldn't understand the cast. I was like, is that his wife? Or, that's his mum. She's the same age as him, clearly. Um, I was so confused. Well, the first scene in the factory is some of the worst banter I've ever heard in my life. So there's a guy looking at a copy of the presumably the Sun. He says, "Page three's a nice piece today." And then oh, he God. And, this whole and sequence he wouldn't mind giving her one. No one has ever said. <laughs> but also, that's the second laddie reference because when he when the young Jimmy Moore sees the Bucks and Barmaid, he just turns to his brother and goes, "Look at the tits yeah. on her!" And you're like, "Oh my God!" And then this page three thing happens. I was like, "Whoever wrote this is the most sexy." And another one says, "Forget about getting your leg over with her." Getting your leg over. The people... <laughs> I mean, the the whole film is littered with sexist stuff. And so I was thinking, well, this is like, a, this is totally in the male gaze. But then, you know, it's a female writer-director, Maria Geese, who's now a big advocate for kind of pay parity for women directors in Hollywood. So it's actually it's in, entirely a, a kind of female-written production and directed. And yet it is packed full of so much sexism. You couldn't do this now. No. It, it, but the sexism dates it. I, I think the problem with it is, is you could argue you're trying to kind of 
show what the uh, obviously I don't I hold my hands up that I don't know what the dialogue was like in a brewery in Sheffield in the mid nineties, but I don't think that you're making any of the surrounding characters to Sean Bean anything other than very dislikable. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I was fascinated by that same thing, so I sort of did a bit of digging into the writer-director. She's American. And, um, she's born in yeah, Puerto Rico, lived in uh, L.A., but her husband was from the north of England, and, and a lot of this film is allegedly based on things that happened to him in his oh, life. Yeah. He was a sort of semi-pro footballer, had trials for Huddersfield, didn't quite make it. So she kind of mined a lot of his life, and I imagined some of these kind of scenarios, but then gave it what she thought was a you know a Hollywood spin. So there is a sort of a lack of credibility or an insincerity to these scenes yeah. that are sort of set in a world that you normally go, oh, this feels authentic. This is almost like a film version of the Steve Bruce novels where someone has a little bit of knowledge about a thing, but to anyone that has even more knowledge than that, you're like, this is so transparently well, not what would that happen in that is, situation. I was thinking about this earlier. I was thinking, I think that might be the eternal problem with films about football or sport, really, in general. If ever I watch anything set in comedy, I think, well, that's not how it works. I think anything yeah. that you watch that is set in a world that you're very familiar with, due to the shorthand of making a film, it's going to ring numerous alarm bells with you. We've discussed that a lot before, and I... I thought this film was going to get it right and we'll come to it because when we first see him playing Sunday League pub football it's good isn't it this is the most realistic depiction of Sunday League football I've ever seen on film it looks good the football because you haven't got that thing where you often have where people are like jumping out the way when they're doing tackles and stuff it's the most realistic look of football I've seen on something when you see when you see Sean Bean running you can tell he's not a footballer. Mm. You can't teach that. Those those footballing sequences, it's clear that these aren't But he's good at football, Sean Just the, the, Like the nuances of the movements. I don't know. He's good at keeping up. I thought he'd be good at football as well. But what I imagine is like if one of us had to pretend to be a cowboy, they could teach us to ride <laughs> yeah. a horse. But to anyone that can really ride a horse, you'd be like, yeah, well, yeah, that guy only learned that six weeks ago. There's not, a, there's not a comfort. I there. comfortably think that Sean Bean is a better footballer than all three of us. <laughs> so back to the factory i think we should introduce uh the love interest um just before that i think there's the there's, there's the comment that someone makes about some woman one of the laddies says to jimmy moore that girl over there's got boobs like a bag full of ferrets Did they? i missed that. what is that no he's talking about her bum he's talking about her bum he's like, got a bum like a bag full of ferrets that's worse her bum moves like a bag full of ferrets Jesus. But I couldn't tell whether that was a compliment uh, or not. It is a compliment, <laughs> is it? But they say it like it is. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Say it to, say it to oh, your partners God. and see how well it goes down. That's actually for everyone at home. And let us know, correspondence-wise. Um, but then the love interest comes in, Emily. She's played by the actress, Emily Lloyd. She's Irish. She's She's got ambitions beyond the factory that she's working in on the payroll. Uh, she wants to move to London and she wants yeah. to go to university. Her name's yeah. Annie Doherty. And um, if we could just touch on her Irish accent quickly. It was so bad, her first line read, Irish line read, that I started laughing. And then I looked into the sort of character. Is it one of those ones where she had a dialogue coach and she just couldn't nail it? And this is what I found on IMDb, okay? Emily Lloyd was originally cast in that role with a northern accent. But that was so unconvincing. It was then changed to an Irish accent. 
Now, what I want to know is how bad did her northern <laughs> accent have to be that her Irish accent was considered the That's lesser of those two evils? But also, like, if, you, if you're messing around with accents that much, just use the one you talk with. Then um, he gets a date with her and um, he makes her talk Irish to him and it's awful. Can we talk about the score? Not as in football, but as in the music. Because the music oh, yeah. underneath every romantic scene is like something from a kind of golden age of Hollywood kind of brief encounter style. Yeah. But <laughs> it's like so inappropriate for the scene that you're watching. It is like a 1950s melodrama. Yeah. yeah. Tonally, yeah. it is insane. I noticed during the lovemaking scene, there was candles lit on the side and you're like, oh, come on. During the lovemaking scene, when he... <laughs> he works in a brewery. He gets the necklace out of his pocket. This really symbolic necklace. <laughs> it's one of the most... <laughs> unromantic things I've ever seen in my life. Not in a way in which they're intending to show a lack of romance, but as in a way, it just, it failed to pull on any kind of emotional heft. Have you ever given a loved one, a partner, or even a family member a gift that you know quite clearly they don't like, but they don't want to be rude or offend you, so they'll sort of go, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. lovely. <laughs> that That is the reaction she gets, but what's quite damning is, I don't think that's the reaction she's supposed to give in the film. I think she's supposed to have enjoyed the gift. Is that is that seriously the best take you had? Well, I did notice she's wear, she wears this like necklace throughout the film. Oh, does she? Like, I don't, I think, I'm pretty sure she doesn't take it off. Um, so after that, we get the Pete Postlethwaite character turns up, who is kind of... A lower league scout. No, he's sorry. It's a manager of a lower, but higher league than Sean Bean. Hallam, Hallam FC. So, like, Sean Bean's playing for a pub team at this point, and he's kind of, yeah, lower league. Yeah. Uh, possibly just below the conference, I'd say. I, the first cutaway you get of him watching um, Sean Bean play football, he's wiping his nose. And you're like, <laughs> I, it doesn't come up that he's got, like, got a cold or anything. And you're like, so is that the best shot you got? Was that Pete Boss? Surely got a shot where he isn't wiping his nose as his own. And as Pete Possilwaite goes to scout, uh, eventually scout Sean Bean, it's like he stumbled upon the game. Like he was just out for a walk and he noticed it. Like, isn't why isn't Pete Possilwaite thinking this guy's nearly forty? What like (laughs) what can he possibly do to my team? He signs him based on what I can tell is like three minutes of scouting <laughs> on a bog on a rainy Sunday. It's like Ron Atkinson and Savo Milosevic. <laughs> I, I think as well, like I want to make a point over the course of this podcast about the length of time given to various points in his career. Yeah, this is and so so I'd say at this point, we're 30 minutes in and he's just been scouted playing for a pub team. And this is 90 minutes this. So we've yeah. got a third of the way yeah. in and he's just now being noticed playing well for a pub team. Well, one of my favourite things on that, um, on Pete Postle's say, uh, Ken Jackson, his character name, is that throughout the film, it doesn't matter when in the film you see him, he is always wearing his manager's tracksuit. <laughs> the umbro. There's a scene later on. And from what I can tell, it's like, it's quite late at night. And Pete's at home on his own making a cup of tea. Like, before bed, it looks like. Sean Bean turns up to sort of ask some advice or get him to, you know, we won't reveal the plot point. And he's still there in his manager's two-piece. He's like a cartoon (laughs) character. You know how a cartoon character is always drawn in the same clothes. (laughs) Who would you say he most kind of resembled? Who do you think their outfit was modelled on? Who did the the kind of costume designer take photos of? I am going to say 
Alan Ball. <laughs> and it's it's really Alan Ball. Yeah. Um, so like Sean Bean plays well. I, I want to talk about the bath scene. So Sean Bean gets kind of jumps in the bath. They're all celebrating, and there's a kind of full on cock shot of Sean Bean's knob. Oh, is there? I missed. Did that. you spot that? No. It's incredible. And you think, well, why is Sean Bean giving away the goods you know, on when Saturday comes in an inconsequential bath scene? <laughs> didn't even do that in Game of Thrones, which has got a notorious amount of nudity. Um, I know we talk about this a lot, but it really hammered home to me how little I'd like the communal bath as a footballer. One of Sean Bean's um, teammates gets in the communal bath with his studs on. I'd be fuming. I just think it's the worst element of being a footballer is the communal bath. When do you think the last communal bath was in, foot, in Premier League going. football? <laughs> they're still going. I reckon Bournemouth probably still going. <laughs> it felt March, wasn't it? Before, obviously, you couldn't do it in the current <laughs> crisis. <laughs> so, Michael, what happens next? Uh, so then he is given... He basically signs for Hallam FC, plays a game for them under the lights, does really, really well. I think he scores. But he, he scores a goal. And what I really enjoyed was he scores it sort of inside the six-yard box. It's not, a you know... A screamer, and within one second, every single one of his players surrounds him, which sort of suggests tactically and positionally these guys have no idea what they're doing. Why was the entire team able to get to him that quickly? It's like a school playground, everyone just running around after the ball. And then um, Pete Postlethwaite takes him aside, and he's got a trial. He's got a trial for Sheffield United. Can I just point out, just before Pete Bosworthway offers him the trial for uh, Sheffield United, you get quite a bit of um, Jimmy Moore slash Sean Bean's dad, who's a bit of a bit of a drinker, oh, yeah. doesn't treat the mum particularly well. He it's bets a lot, and he's got male pattern baldness. The the character of the dad, but the actor John McHenry has clearly they've clearly just shaved his head into male pattern baldness. <laughs> and you really notice this film, you watch it back, that you can see he's got stubble on the middle bit where it's supposed to have male pattern baldness. <laughs> and you can see like the, the bits of hair, the tufts around the sides that he's had to grow. And, and I got so deep into this, I was like, oh my God, like, he's got stubble where he's meant to be bald. And John McHenry, the actor, did have hair at this point. So that is exactly oh, wow. what they've done. They've shaved him into male I'd say I'd say he's the most two-dimensional character in the history of film <laughs> the bad dad the dad's awful he wants his son to fail he's a gambler he's stealing money off his wife he's an unrepentant bad egg there's also talking of unrepentant bad eggs I just realized there's when he gets the trial there's then this guy that doesn't like him who's also in the team who kind of says you don't deserve the trial and Sean Bean headbutts him. What I love about that guy is he clearly is one of those people where he turns up and you go, well, that guy, there's no way that guy would pass as even a Sunday league footballer. So they've had to cast someone who can vaguely act yeah. to be his sort of like rival within the squad. Talking of footballers or actors, are you aware of the big bit of trivia about how they cast this? No. no. So the captain of Sheffield United. Oh, I do know this. I, yeah, I know that. I, well, I, the, the other thing just before you get to that is he says after that game, um, Ken tells him that Tony Curry was there and wants to give him a trial. And at this point, you have no idea who Tony Curry is. Like, it hasn't been mentioned. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, who, who is Tony Curry? I'm going to assume that that's the person that is the Sheffield United manager, because that's where the story's building to, which would have been at the time probably Dave Bassett or Howard Kendall. Yeah. But you're thinking, why is the manager of Sheffield United scouting a non-league football game? <laughs> like, they're in the first division at that stage, and it's 
midway through the season, he's not searching for a sort of mid-30s winger to improve the promotion. (laughs) It's so weird because that's the problem with it as a football thing is that it all moves too fast. Yeah, but it's the that Tony Curry is the Tony Curry. What do you mean? Well, he's a Leeds and Sheffield United legend. That guy played the guy who's the manager of Sheffield United played for England seventeen times in real life. Well, not the one that was um, not the one that ran the pub in Hollyoaks, though. The manager of Sheffield United in this is also later in Hollyoaks running the pub. But I think there's two managers. Is Tony Curry the one who looks like the blonde one? Yeah, he looks like Bradley Walsh with frosted tips, basically, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So he's a real person called Tony Curry. Yes, yeah. He's a, Sheffield, a bit of a Sheffield United legend. Right. That's a deep cut, isn't it? Because if I don't know that, how many people are going to know that Tony Curry? I didn't even realise that Tony Curry was a thing until I saw the credits and it said, Tony Curry played by Tony Curry. <laughs> and at that, it was at that point, I was like, who's Tony Curry? I'd have been much more excited if it had been Mark Curry. It would have made more sense. I'd have been able to work out how it was <laughs> Tim Curry. If I'm going to push it. Either would have done for me. Um, so then um, he gets his trial with Sheffield United. Um, there's then a weird scene in the bookies uh, where he uh, he wins a thousand pounds on a horse, which I don't understand what the relevance of this scene to the because his dad's like a, a problem gambler. He's a gambling addict who's losing the family's money to to gambling, and then Sean Bean puts a load of money on a horse, wins gives a load of money to his brother and his mum. And you're like, so what's the moral of this bit? That, oh, if you're a good person, you can gamble your way out of financial problems. But if you're not, you can't. I don't understand. Also, you kind of, you get 10 minutes of this scene. You get 10 minutes of the kind of the pint in the pub right at the start. And that that 20 minutes could be so much better used later on in the film yes. as the story of his football career progresses that you don't see. Yeah, the sort of human interest stuff in the middle in that second act is really flabby. In, the, in a very short space of time, his girlfriend announces she's pregnant. Yeah. Uh, he wins that money on the horses. And when he's in the pub with his mates, I'm going to say it, there's a lot of toxic masculinity yeah. on display there. Like, I, I think he really needs to get some new friends. Yeah, his friends are awful. Whenever he's in the pub with his mates, they're all wearing like blazers and ties and yeah. shirts. Is that what people used to wear? I know, I was fascinated out? by that. I, they've obviously made that decision based on something, but like... I don't remember a time in the 90s when people used to go out dressed like they were doing a job interview. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Um, they force him to have a whiskey in that pub, even though they know... Well, you can never know. Some of them seem to know he's got a trial, and others he seems to be keeping it a secret from. That's not very clear. But they force him to have a whiskey, and then there's a hard cut to what I presume is like four or five hours later, and they're in a strip club, and there's a a stripper with a Sheffield United tattoo on her bum that he's getting off with. It's like, I've, I've only ever seen things escalate that quickly in a hard cut for comedic purposes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels like a, a scene where he's going to go, I, he's not getting me to that strip club, hard cut, he's in the strip yeah. club. <laughs> Just before the strip club, he goes to see a flat with his girlfriend. He's like, I want you to settle down, go to this flat. And they end up having a big row in the flat. Like the flat's very nice. It's kind of implied the flat is in a bit of a state of disrepair. That it's not very nice. But the only thing you can see that kind of tells you that is the fact the sofa's upside down. (laughs) And then... And, but then they're having this big row, like, row in the flat with all, like kind of all the lights turned off, and I just I was just like, where's the estate agent? 
Have they just given them the keys and they've just gone in there and have a row? But then, like you said, yeah, five minutes later, he's in the strip club. So the strip club is an awful scene. It's dreadful. It shows him in such a bad light. I like, know, obviously. It's, it's like sucking boobs as well. <laughs> yeah, it's like, really it's graphic. I'm like, at that point, I was like, I thought this was a football film. Like, <laughs> there's so little football. There's, I've seen a pub game at this point. Yeah, and, and so that he then ends up sleeping with a stripper. This is when his life goes completely wrong. All he's, right. He's got a second chance. I was kind of hoping the film would end then. So then he's got his second trial at Sheffield United. Now, I know I've already said about you, you spot things when you're interested in a topic or you're familiar with it. But the trials are during winter. We can tell that from the weather. They're consecutive Saturdays at 11am on the pitch of Bramall Lane. <laughs> <laughs> Which seems utterly mad to me. His trial is four hours before the kickoff of the game in the ground the game's happening. I mean, I'm going to say it. This is, for me, from here on, the film just really derails in terms of any, what little credibility it had based on the world of football. Every single scene, it just bit on you like, I'm sorry, what? The football element of it. The, the football mean? element yeah, of the it, Because yeah. yeah. he, he, I think we should just quickly say, so he, he has a trial for Sheffield United and he, he blows it because he had gone out and got too drunk and slept with the stripper. So he's late, he's hungover. And they basically bin him off. And it really embarrasses Pete Postlethwaite as well. He's humiliated that he brought this trialist along and he yeah. was so drunk he couldn't even play. Yeah. And then um, his life goes awfully because he loses his job. He punches the brewery foreman. Yeah. His girlfriend finds out about the stripper. Yeah. And then worst of all, his brother Russ has his football program sold <laughs> by his dad. And you knew this was a chance this would happen. As in like the second scene, Russ and uh, Sean Bean have a discussion about him not selling the football programmes. You would never dare yeah, sell the football He's a collector of football programmes, isn't he? And I was like, what is going to happen to these football programmes? <laughs> yeah. Sure enough, the deadbeat dads flogged them. A football programme is still a collectible thing now. I remember buying them all in the 90s when we went to our Garland stuff. But obviously you needed them in those days because you didn't have the teams written down. But like there was collectors and stuff. This kid is a proper collector of football programme. Is that still a thing? Well, this is interesting. In the film, they have a... Um, Sean Bean gives him a, the the program for the 1966 World Cup final as like like the kind of crown jewel of his collection of programs. How much do you think an original 1966 World Cup final program is going for right now on eBay? Ooh. Oh no, I, is it I'm really no. 350 pounds, 200 quid. Right now, with three days left, it's an, it's up for 36 quid. Bloody hell. Not a lot. Why would you say that? Is there money in football programmes? I don't think there's... What you've got to remember is probably they've probably sold at least sixty or 70,000 of them. And everyone that bought one on the day was fully aware that that's not something you throw away. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. like, it's like when I bought that World Cup 90 sticker album, it was 30 quid. And you're like, I presume this would be worth good. £10,000. <laughs> So so this is, everything's at a low point. He's going to see his brother, who's works in the pit. There's a strange, needless scene where a kid on the bus talks to him, which I don't understand yeah. at all. Can we talk about that? I made a note of the dialogue. So the little kid at the bus is kind of smiling at him, and the kid goes, I'm going to visit my granddad. And Sean Bean replies, that's nice. And the kid goes, and he's got some sweets for me. What? I, yeah, I just what thought there was going to be more relevance to it. The only logic I could think was that was that supposed to sort of turn him around on the idea of wanting to have a kid? Like this sort of sweet kid offered him some sweets and suddenly his view on being a parent had shifted because there was just no logic for it at all. No, it was absolutely bizarre. But then 
the, you kind of forget that because then he gets to the pit and there's an ambulance there and there's been an accident. And I actually think this is the best bit of the film. Um, his brother has been killed in the pit. And Sean Bean does a quite an emotional scene where he cries next to a railway track that I thought didn't really fit in with the rest of the film in terms of tone in that he actually does a very good performance of a man having a breakdown on a railway track comparatively to the stripper scene that had preceded it by five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's literally five minutes of team, him sucking on the boom of the stripper and trying to kill himself in front of a train. <laughs> Um, can I say as well, that as he's walking down the train tracks, you can see the train coming behind him at a snail's pace. <laughs> and then it's cut with a, a train going really fast and then back to Sean Bean with the train literally creeping up behind him. He could, like, it's going so slow, you can clearly see he can outrun and that train. Then you get this brother's, the brother's funeral where they're all stood around the coffin being lowered into the ground and Sean Bean's kind of stood away. I don't kind of understand why, maybe just because he can't deal with it. But they cut yeah. to Sean Bean, and he's just stood next to a skip. <laughs> not even a wicker one. No, not even a wicker one. <laughs> and you're like, why are you stood? I know he's stood away, but you wouldn't be just stood next to the skip. It's like at every point they need to say, this man's life is bleak. <laughs> um, and then we hit the bit where he starts turning around, turning it around. He goes to Pete Postlethwaite's house. He knocks on the door. And at, at this point, you realise that Pete Postlethwaite is a total rip-off of Mickey from Rocky. Yeah. And Pete Postlethwaite is, like you say, he's in that coat. He's drinking from a Sheffield United mug. And he's staring at a collection of trophies, which are the kind of trophies you'd amass when you're 11 years yeah. old, like yeah. third best at the scout yeah. tournament. His living room <laughs> is like 90% trophies. And you kind of wonder, how is his wife putting up with this? And also, like, how has he won that many? There's got to be some really arbitrary trophies in that collection. Yeah. So the next six or seven minutes are essentially, if Rocky is the kind of Harrods of montage sequences, the next six or seven minutes are like the Tesco own brand version. Like. <laughs> I enjoyed uh, him practicing his keep ups in the fog. That was a nice bit of the montage. He was actually good at. Can sure mean he's good at keeping up? He's running around some cones as if that's going to improve. Like, but he's. What yeah. would you do with a footballing montage? Because there's very little that one man can do on his own to get better at football. I'll tell you what I wouldn't do, and that's that's a scene yeah. in the allotment. I don't know if you remember that, where he's um he's sort of like running sideways, zigzagging between these, oh, yeah. I don't know what they are, like dividers. There's a chair at the other end. He runs round the chair and runs back. But instead of running through, he does something that I've... I've never seen or been asked to do during any football training match ever, which is he does a series of what can only be described as like bunny hops <laughs> over the markers. Yeah. And I was like, what the heck? Why is he doing that? And then I thought... I'm trying to avoid all the marrows in the allotment. Well, I thought uh, maybe, and I think you'd mentioned this in a previous pod, Josh, that the Mexican player Blanco, you remember his trademark move <laughs> yeah, that he yeah, does? Yeah, yeah. Maybe Sean Bean was just a massive fan of Mexican football. <laughs> Um, and then, so he, does, he kind of gets his life back on track and he gets another trial with Sheffield United. And this is where the film speeds up in a, to a level I couldn't believe. So now I'd say what what we've got left of the film, 20 minutes, if that. Yeah. So he, he does the trial and the next thing you know, he's on the bench for Sheffield United. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. We've had 70 minutes of almost inconsequential football and now the real story, the bit you want to know, where he starts stepping up, like he playing at like an elite you level. You see him doing the trial, and then it hard cuts 
to him being on the bench for Sheffield United. And there's only two on the bench in those days, or three, including the goalkeeper. You go, well, being on the bench is a hell of an achievement here. But it's treated like he's disappointed that despite passing a trial, coming from non-league into Division 1, he's disappointed he hasn't got straight into the first 11. <laughs> I know, it's insane. Can we also talk about Mel Sterland? Yeah, I think this is the time. So Mel Sterland is the captain of Sheffield United. Mel Sterland, who I vaguely remember playing for Leeds when they won the league. And yeah. Mel Sterland looks old in this. I then <laughs> Wikipedia Mel Sterland. And he's primarily, I didn't know this because it was before my time, he's primarily famous for playing 300 games for Sheffield Wednesday. He never played for Sheffield yeah. United. Oh, wow. Yeah, but he's kind of the, the captain of Sheffield United in this. And he's a bit of a baddie figure. He doesn't think Sean Bean's good enough to play for them. Yeah, he's fuming. Yeah. Like, disproport- like unprofessionally fuming that he's, he's having to play. Even like we know for a fact Ali Dyer didn't even have this kind of poor treatment from his teammates. <laughs> but uh, Mel Sterling is giving both barrels to Sean Bean. Yeah. I've got a lot to say on him when we get to the semi-final. But for now, Sheffield United versus Arsenal. It cuts to a sort of shot of the, the team sheet and the, the date. And it's a Saturday, 18th of March, 1995, it says. And this is, for me, this is where the film really starts to come apart. We've mentioned the weather already, and I know it's cold north of the wall, but that game was supposed to happen in March, and it looks like they're playing in Siberia. (laughs) (laughs) And also, Sheffield United are in the first division at this stage. Arsenal were in the Premier League, and they're playing Arsenal. So this could only be the sixth round of the FA Cup. Yeah. Like if you're really applying that logic to it in terms of like when the date and the schedule mm. of that competition happens. But they lose that game. So they can't have been playing Arsenal in the FA Cup because we know later on they play Man United in the semi-final of the FA Cup. The next game, or a little while later, they're playing Leeds United, who are also in the Premier League at this point in time. Now, the League Cup has finished by this point. So it can't be the League Cup. So what the hell? Like, who is the football <laughs> consultant on this film? Like, who well, is you know, who yeah, is letting you know, this? You know, the other thing they've missed, which I couldn't believe it, halfway through the menu game, it's mentioned that it's the semi-final of the FA Cup, and you're like, but why is it a Bramall Lane? <laughs> <laughs> it's like no neutral um, grounds. I actually had to kind of rewind that because is is it right that all that information is delivered in a in a radio yeah. report like is Sean Bean sat in bed and kind of all the context around this match is delivered by a radio report that Sean Bean is sat in bed listening yeah. to yeah and and the sort of the sign off to that is like oh and um Jimmy Muir is still on the bench waiting to make his debut as if anybody gives a shit anybody <laughs> involved with Sheffield United cares whether this 35 year old former non-leaguer that hasn't made an appearance who is soon to be the designated penalty taker is going to be in the goddamn starting lineup it's insane so then we get the match against Man U and the player gets injured at, at half time Sean Bean has to come on and are they 2-0 down at this point 1-0 down then Sean Bean one comes on Sean Bean comes on he concedes a free kick he takes a booking Mel Sterling at this point is beside himself yeah. Man United score from the resulting free kick. Jimmy Moore's stock is rock bottom. Yeah. Um, the Man United's free kick is an astonishing double cut. It's a bit like the train situation in that they've got footage of this fake Man United taking a kick and they've also got footage of a ball going into goal, but they haven't got footage of both. And the angles are completely different. 
Yeah. So the ball launches into one direction and they cut to it going in a completely di- different direction into the goal. Yeah. I mean, there is there is one sort of fundamental rule of editing, which is called the axis of action without getting too geeky, which is you can't cross this line of action because visually your brain mm. can't process it if you cut. It's like if you have two people walking towards each other, you have to film and cut a certain way. Otherwise, it looks like they're walking away from each other. And that film yeah. basically breaks. It's like the first rule of grammar of editing. It breaks it. It's like he kicks it and you're like, what? Is he kicked that into his own goal? <laughs> <laughs> um, 2 0 up, man, you. And then Jimmy Muir, the fairy tale begins. And we should talk about the, the catalyst for why it begins as well, really. So, oh, so yeah. they're oh, arguing God. over a throw. It, no, Sean Bean wants to take a throw in. Mel Sterling won't let, won't let him. Oh, but yeah. the, when then he kind of loses the ball and he looks at the crowd and he sees his dead brother taking his seat. Oh, yeah. Which is a hell of a twist. Yeah, I I genuinely started laughing at this point, which I'm sure wasn't the intention of the filmmakers, because I, I thought for a second that his brother had faked his death in order to be the inspiration for Jimmy to get his act together, because you know he always had that sort of vibe where he was trying to inspire him, and then obviously yeah. I realised that's absolutely ridiculous. But the fact that I considered that plausible for one moment... <laughs> And also, it's probably more plausible than what follows. Because what follows is that, uh, does he set up a goal and then score one? He sees his dead brother in the crowd. The Mel Sterland launches a long ball. Jimmy heads it on. And then Mel Sterland himself scores it. But the, th- the difficult thing about this one, too, is that Mel Sterling's original free kick for this one, too, appears to be in his own half. <laughs> so he's lo- Mel Sterling has launched this ball up to Sean Bean in the box. Sean Bean has headed it down. Mel Sterling has run about 40 yards in like four seconds, like three seconds, and buried it. You're just, what? I had the same observation, and I, and I actually cr- I crunched the numbers because I was so impressed with it. So, so I, I've done the maths, right? The pitch at Bramall Lane is 110.5 yards long, which is 101.4 metres. So let's just say that Mel Sterling had to cover just under half that from the point that he struck the original free kick to the point where he slotted in Jimmy's header, right? Let's say 40 metres. And I timed it on the film. He covers that time in two seconds, okay? <laughs> and he'd have to run at a consistent speed of 55.9 miles an hour to make up that ground, which if that's correct... 35-year-old Mel Sterland is in the top five fastest land animals on the planet. <laughs> but to be fair, to be fair, Michael, I never saw him play. So I... <laughs> what do you think happened there? Do you think they've misedited it? Do you think they've got to the edit and gone, oh, we haven't got the footage we need here. We're going to have to I do a botch just, job. I... He can't say in the script... Mel Sterling launches a ball from his own half. Sean Bean heads it on Mel Sterling, finishes it. It must be them trying to make the best of a bad situation in the edit with the footage that they found they've yeah. got, right? But I, I was just going to say, I just don't think they care. By the, the the end of this film is so rushed, like it's almost like they've written the first seventy minutes and then they're like, "What have we got to do?" They've, like they've just packed it in, and so their attention to detail is just out of the window by the time well, Mel Sterling's playing a forty-yard one-two. By the, the thing that it is, like, because I remember, I remember when it came out, there was this whole thing about Sean Bean taking a penalty because he he does take a penalty, like. And it, he had to do it at half time in a game, and so I was like, well, "How much of the footage is done at half time in a game? Were they filming this? They, I know not. I know not all of it is, 
was one of the problems that they had like a 10 minute window to get so many shots so when we announced we were going to do this as a film club we had quite a few tweets from people and quite a few people tweeted that they were there the night that this was filmed and basically they had a sort of small window at half time to film it but they had to delay the start of the second half because when they were trying to get sean bean to take that penalty it it took him five attempts to score (laughs) i think that's that shot of um what's his name mel sterland taking the free kick that's that's definitely a pickup so I think they had X amount of kind of genuine game footage within the stadium and then they yeah. had to go away because there's a few close-ups of people sort of heading a ball or, you know, the close yeah. stuff around with the ball at the feet that are definitely filmed elsewhere. And I think they just haven't covered the geography properly. Well, I've I've twice for television things ended up taking penalties at half-time in football matches. And by the time the whistler's gone and all the players have got off the pitch... That's three minutes gone. When you film something in that period, you it's a very short window of time. They've probably got a maximum of 10 minutes to do that whole thing. Well, as a man who runs the halftime of show course. at the, heart, the home of football, London Stadium, it's 10 minutes. Yeah. 10 minutes in and out. Yeah. And you, yeah. It's really tight. So Mel Stalin scores a goal and then Sean Bean gets fouled in the area an elbow in the face which is a very rare thing to lead to a penalty but the thing i really enjoyed which i'm sure our listeners will appreciate michael could you drop in here the sound effect of jimmy getting elbowed now i don't think that sounds anything like an elbow no when you when you hear that back it is hilarious well it's one of a number of sound effects sort of foley effects that are dropped on there's one earlier when we first start this match someone kicks a ball and it's not an important he just kicks a ball and it sounds like what you imagine bruce lee punching a horse would sound like, like that. <laughs> whoever put that on has never heard a football being kicked ever in terms of the whole thing feeling rushed the end is unbelievable because it gets to a penalty. Sean Bean's going to take the penalty, which obviously you've already covered Michael as being insane. I think he's suffering concussion at the time oh, yeah. as well, which is a real sort of damning indictment of the attitude to head injuries. But like he would have been taken off the pitch. He can barely see or walk. And not yeah. only is he on the pitch, the captain gives him the ball to take the penalty. Then he scores the penalty and then he goes to celebrate and then just freeze phrases on him. And that's it. <laughs> I know. It's like a shit Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Like... <laughs> I just couldn't quite believe it had happened. I, I presumed there'd be a few minutes of like tying up a few loose ends. Or like. Yeah. So just to recap, that last 20 minutes, he gets signed to Division One from non league. He gets on the bench for like a, what, in the first chance he gets. And the second game, he comes off the bench and scores two wins. Like, third game, third game. Oh, the third game. So that, that, that could be the whole film. The whole film could just actually be about that period. It's so... Like, I, was, I feel so robbed of all that. I was like, when is this going to kick off? And then it's too late by the time it does. But the weirdest thing about it is, surely, I mean, maybe you get the point, but it does feel like it really comes to a shimmering halt at the end that i was i was surprised that that was it i mean can we also talk about there were certain players on that manchester united team that looked like they had tried to cast lookalikes of manchester united <laughs> players at the time like there was one guy who sort of had a beckham-esque vibe to oh, him. really but you know remember on um never mind the buzzcocks when they sort of cast the, the lineup round yeah it looked like it was sort of a bad version of david beckham that they cast <laughs> for comedy purposes the goalie looks about <laughs> 16. The yeah. goalie's a tiny, a tiny young man. Overall, what were your thoughts? It blows my mind that it just ends like that. She was she was a first-time writer-director. Right. So, you know. I think I think what's 
also for all of the jokes and all the points we made, I was was never bored. It rollocked along, and I quite like. I thought Sean Bean was good. I was certainly surprised when his brother died. Not as surprised as I was when he appeared in the stands, but like, was, <laughs> like I've watched films where I've had a worse time. Yeah, no, I like broadly. It was it was okay. I mean, it's got so many kind of big errors, but broadly it's okay and it kind of stands up it's not as horrific as the first five minutes it'll make you believe but the real story i think as a football fan you want to know is what happens to him when he jumps from non-league to suddenly playing yeah. professional football and what's you know well i just love to know did they win the fa cup final you know? yeah <laughs> like what happened to him did he go on and have a career or was that a flash in the plan also the other thing with it when he signs as sheffield united so he's annoyed at not being in the team but presumably he's got a bare minimum of a year's contract playing at a Division One wage. It's a completely life-changing yeah. event, but it doesn't seem to influence him that much. It's not like, oh my God, I was an unemployed man and now I'm playing for one of the biggest 30 clubs in the country. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really add up. But there we go. But you said you want to know what happens to him after. Well, I, I doing a bit of research, I discovered that a sequel has been no. written which would see Sean Bean reprise his role as Jimmy Moore. It's called When Saturday Comes Redemption. So, But presumably it's just written somewhere. But I think it could still be made because Sean Bean is not that much more unrealistic that he's 50 now playing top flight football. If I was writing When Saturday Comes Redemption, I would cast Jimmy Muir as the Pete Postlethwaite figure to a new young player. Yeah. That's what I'd do. I'd watch that. Yeah. Oh, I'd definitely watch that. Yeah. Particularly if there was an hour-long podcast, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, one of the things that made me think when I was watching it, obviously it's sort of, although I always assumed growing up that Sean Bean had sort of written this for himself as a passion project. That actually wasn't the case at all. There's a whole story around like how the film came about. But I wondered, is there another, are there sort of good examples that either we or even our listeners can think of, of sort of famous actors who we know are football fans that they could write their own When Saturday Comes style story or film. You know, for example, Tom Hanks is supposedly an Aston Villa fan. Is there a world in which he writes and stars in the Doug Ellis story? <laughs> or, you know, Judy, Judy Dench as an Everton fan writes some kind of like Delia Smith style. Everton are on their knees. She comes in as this new older female chairman. Is Judy Dench they don't an respect Everton her fan? Yeah, allegedly. Yeah. Because she's, of Bill she's Kenry. The games. But I'd, I'd love to hear, yeah. we haven't done any reviews this year this series so i wonder whether a fun uh, review system was we get listeners to uh, give us an elevator pitch for right, a kind of actor plus club plus narrative uh, you know hugh grant's a fulham fan is there a hugh grant plus fulham plus football film narrative review that you can give us and we'll read out the best ones on the show yes great look forward so, to them wonderful um i thoroughly enjoyed when saturday comes let us know if you know of any good football films and we will watch them but uh, next week, we're going to go with... Uh, next week, we'll be watching United Passions. And you might go, what is that? You might remember it as the Tim Roth starring as Sepp Blatter biopic that came out just before Sepp Blatter was disgraced. Not that he wasn't disgraced for 20 years before that, but there we go. And th- just to give you a flavour of how amazing this film is going to be, it had a budget of 25 to $32 million and drew just over $160,000 in the box office. So... That's a big loss, but I can't wait to see it. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening to the first ever Quickly Kevin Film Club. We'll be back tomorrow with a brand new episode of Now That's What I Call Quickly Kevin. Until then, Robbie Slater, see you later. 
This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.